So I have a true confession to make. I know, right? Sometimes I'm pretty terrible about sending an RSVP. I don't think that I'm alone, but don't tell my mother that I'm confessing this. She would probably uh, pull out this finger and, and wave that at me. I don't know why I'm sometimes not so good at sending the RSVP. It's, you know, it's easier, I think, when I actually have a conflict and, and I can just say no. It's harder when I don't really have a conflict, but I just don't want to go. And it's hard to say no. Sometimes I feel like I have to check all the schedules of all the people at my house before I can give an RSVP. And sometimes, quite frankly, I just forget until the event has passed and I find the card in the pile that's on the kitchen table, right? Or someone says something about it. Has this ever happened to you? Is it only me that that does this? Maybe it's worse even more when sending, I've, I've sent yes in response and then at the last minute decide that I can't go or that I don't want to go. You've changed your mind and, and, and you don't want to go. That, something about the commitment that we're making when we RSVP, yes or no, and the action required on the other side of that. When it comes to the kingdom of God, we are all invited into the feast. That's not just a meal, but it is the fellowship of a relationship with God and with one another. Living in God's abiding presence and abiding love. That's what we're invited to when we're invited into God's kingdom. And today's parable asks us to ponder two responses. Our response to being invited to the feast... And our response to being inviting of others to the feast. We're going to consider those two things tonight. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us. And let it take hold of us and transform us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's text out of Luke 14 centers around a meal. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, it seems that Jesus is either always on his way to a meal or at a meal or coming from a meal, which probably proves that he's Methodist, (laughs) right? Um, But our story uh, today starts in the first verse of chapter 14. Meals were important social events of that day. If you were invited to someone's house to share a meal, often it was an indicator of your standing in the community, uh, your social status in that, in that place. All of the texts today that we'll be reading come out of the message translation. One time, when Jesus went for a Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisees, all the guests had their eyes on him, watching his every move. In this one verse, we learn a couple of key things. One, it's a Sabbath meal, which means that it is a meal on the day of rest. It is a meal on the day in which there is no work to be done. That is one of the the laws of of the Jewish uh, tradition and and faith. Their belief was that on the Sabbath, you ceased from work. They couldn't cook on that. All the food had to be prepared already for that day so that no one had to work 
on that day. We know that it is a Sabbath meal. We know that it's at the the home of of one of the top leaders of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, were the group of religious people that knew the law, the Jewish law, inside and out, and were known for their very strict adherence to that law. They they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and, and never wavered from that. So we know that. We know that this man, one of the top leaders, was a, a man of respect and clout and power, and those around him would have been watching this uh, dynamic between this particular Pharisee and Jesus. Uh, Jesus has already been stirring things up at this point. With his teaching and his healing, he has been seen uh, hanging out with the wrong people in the wrong places. He's been trying to show them about the kingdom of God, and honestly, it doesn't look anything like what they were expecting. And they don't know what to do with that. He's turning their world upside down in a way that uh, sort of shatters all of their expectations. And here's what happens. Right before him, there was a man hugely swollen in his joints. So Jesus asked the religion scholars and Pharisees present, Is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath, yes or no? They were silent. So he took the man, healed him, and sent him on his way. Then he said, Is there anyone here who, if a child or animal fell down a well, wouldn't rush to pull him out immediately, not asking whether or not it was the Sabbath? They were stumped. There was nothing they could say to that. This isn't the first time that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. In fact, in Luke's gospel, this is the third time that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. And by Jewish law, unless it was life-threatening, healing then was considered work. And you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. This man's condition wasn't life-threatening. And Jesus chose to heal him. Jesus knew that all of their eyes were watching him. And he asked them, those who kept the law, whether it was legal or not, to heal. Is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? What are they going to say? Right? He sets them up in this way that really it's just his nature to provide the love and the healing and the mercy, no matter what the time, no matter what the day, no matter who it is. And they don't know what to do with that. This Sabbath meal has already, we're only in verse 6, and it's already been kind of awkward, right? And Jesus is about to make it even more awkward for them. This is the same meal, it's the same context, this whole story today. He went on to tell a story to the guests around the table. Noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor, he said, When someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host. Then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. Red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. When you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the last place. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come up to the front. That will give the dinner guests something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. 
Can you imagine they're sitting around this, uh, in this gathering, around the table, whatever their, their table setting would have been, and, and Jesus just is speaking this? It's not like he went in and was trying to teach them or stood at the head of the table to, to give a Bible study or direct their attention. This is just in this conversation that he's saying this to them. And can you imagine if you're the one who's sitting at the place of honor, right? I mean, I, looking around and trying to figure out, is he really saying, what is he saying about me and about us? And, and Jesus, you know, maybe is just continuing to eat, right? He's dropped this on them, and he's going about his business. Humility, Jesus is talking about. And humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It's not about beating yourself up. It's not about not knowing who you are and knowing that you are God's beloved. It's about knowing that you are no more beloved than the person next to you, knowing who you are. Jesus is calling us to set aside our obsession with rank and with status and to be at peace with who we are. In the church, honestly, sometimes this looks like uh, insiders who think we have a corner market on how to be a Christian, on what that looks like. The temptation for us when we are gathered together as the body of Christ, uh, the temptation is that we become so focused on being right and doing it right, following Jesus right in the right way, that we miss being in right relationship. And we miss uh, doing the right thing. Sometimes that's how we put ourselves at the head of the table, by thinking that the only way to do something is the way that we do it. The insider language of being a Christian, it seems that we forget that once we were the outsiders, once we were the ones that were coming in, then he turned to the host And said, the next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Invite some people who never get invited out, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. You'll be and experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. In the NRSV, these... uh, the, the people who are the kind of people um, who never get invited. In the NRSV, it is the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. When you invite people who are only like you or, or only in your same uh, social situation or the only your same level of education or your same place in life, then, then it sets up sort of this um, need to return the favor, right? Um, we hear stories in the church of, of people that will, you know, bring somebody a casserole and a dish, and it's a, it's a real dish, not a disposable dish. Well, then what do you do with that? Do you return the dish to them empty? Or you make something and give it back to them, you know, uh, and return that. And then if you return the dish full, then what are they supposed to do? They had given it to you to, in the first place just to take care of you. And so it sets up this really odd dynamic of how do we just help take care of one another, and love one another without the expectation of something in return. 
I've been really trying to practice the last couple of years that, that when I give something to someone, uh, I try to imagine uh, really Jesus in between me and that person. And, and so if they give anything back or a response back, I, I want it to be to Jesus, not to me, right? Trusting that why I'm doing something is because of who I am in Christ, not because of who I want that person to believe I am, but really a sense of, of just giving. Invite people. Be in relationship with people who can't pay you back. Be in relationship with people who are the misfits or the outcasts. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. That triggered a response from one of the guests. How fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. That sense of being invited into God's kingdom and and being in the presence of God and getting to eat in in that place. Eating dinner in God's kingdom. But the question is, who exactly is it? that gets to eat in God's kingdom. The Jewish people uh, would have had images of, of what it meant for, what it would look like for God's kingdom to return. They were waiting for the return of the Messiah. They were longing for the return of the Messiah, where, G, where God would once again deliver God's people from oppression and slavery. And they had images um, of what that would look like, images like uh, the lion and the lamb or the, the wolf and the lamb being in the same place and being able to live in peace, uh, the image of um, the oppressed being set free and of the captive being set free, the, the reversal of what they were experiencing, images of a wedding, images of a feast. A feast was often one of those recurring images for them about what it would look like when God returns to to save God's people. But for the Jewish people, any of those images that that they told one another, that they experienced, that they rehearsed, always were exclusively for them. They were God's people. And what they expected was that when God uh, sent the Messiah, it would be for them, just for them, because they were God's people. And Jesus changes all of that for them and for us. And he tells this story. Jesus followed up. Yes, for there was once a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. When it was time for dinner, he sent out his servant to the invited guests saying, come on in. The food's on the table. Then they all began to beg off one after another, making excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of property and need to look it over. Send my regrets. Another said, I just bought five teams of oxen and I really need to check them out. Send my regrets. And yet another said, I just got married and need to get home to my wife. The servant went back and told the master what had happened. He was outraged and told the servant quickly, get out into the city streets and alleys, collect all who look like they need a square meal, all the misfits and homeless and wretched you can lay your hands on and bring them here. The servant reported back, Master, I did what you commanded and there's still room. There's still room. The master said, then go to the country roads. Whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. 
Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is going to get so much as a bite at my dinner party. So again, remember, this is the Sabbath meal that that Jesus is sharing with all of these religious people, all of these church people. And this is what he is saying to them. The ones who have been invited and turned down the invitation aren't going to get to be part of the feast. It's the the misfits and the homeless and the wretched and and all the people who weren't invited. Who who now that, when it says, uh, uh, when you find, whoever you find, drag them in. In the NRSV it says, compel them to come. Compel them to come and be part of the feast. We're all in this story somewhere. And it's a hard story for us, actually, because it's not just about the feast. It's about our response, our response to being invited and our response to being inviting. I think we're encouraged to consider at least those two responses. The, The first, our response. How will we respond? How do we respond to the invitation into God's kingdom We've all been invited to the feast. Our, our communion liturgy says, uh, God invites to his table all who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with God and with one another. The table is open to all. God invites us all to the feast, all into the kingdom of God, into this relationship with God and with one another, into a salvation, a wholeness, a, a life, abundant life, and eternal life, life right now, we're, we're invited into this kingdom feast with God. We've all been invited, and we are no different than the ones who had been invited and then didn't show up. The ones who had been invited and, and said yes and then turned down the invitation on the last day. The practice in that time, they didn't have email, they didn't have telephones, Right? They didn't really even have any other way except sending servants to communicate. So they would decide the day that they were going to have a party, and they would invite all the people to the party, and if whoever said yes would know that they blocked that day. And then on that day, when the feast was prepared, the servants would go out to those who had said yes and say, the feast is prepared, dinner's ready, come on. So the ones who gave these excuses on the day of the feast had already said yes to the feast. And the excuses that they offered were really pretty much as absurd as some of the excuses that get turned in for kids missing school or for people not going to work. I was looking at at some of those and uh, one of the ones about not going to school. Please excuse Johnny for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch. And when we found it Monday, we thought it was Sunday. That was a a real excuse turned in. Uh, Two uh, that I found about someone calling in, not being able to go to work. One was, I I just put a casserole in the oven. Well, really? Like... uh, you're supposed to be at work. And one was, I love that, I accidentally got on a plane. <laughs> accidentally. These are absurd excuses, as are the excuses given for not coming to the feast. And the, the one, the guy who has 
land, has a piece of property, and needs to go uh, inspect it, right? You don't buy property without having already inspected it. The one who bought five teams of oxen, uh, presumably to, to be work, work oxen for him, right? You don't buy oxen unless you've already looked at them and inspected them. The one who said, I just got married, I've got to go home to my wife. There were provisions in the law that said if, if a husband was being called off to military duty in which it might, he might not return home, and if he had just gotten married, then there was provision for him to go and spend time with his wife. This feast, this uh, feast was not a life and death situation. And it's the case that when the original invitation went out, likely that man would have known when he was getting married. So they offer these excuses as to why they can't come. And really none of them are valid reasons. Sometimes those of us already in the church find ourselves in in a place of spiritual apathy or or stagnation. We've said yes to the invitation. Uh, We've said yes to to following God, Uh, but it's like we've settled for the appetizers and we're missing out on the, the main meal. We're in We're enjoying that opening part of the meal, the the little bite-sized pieces of whatever the great appetizers are, but there's more to the feast than just the appetizers. Jesus invites us to come all the way in to, to where the main dish is, the main course of the feast. Or maybe it is that we've said yes and we've stopped by the, the feast to see who else is there or to make sure that the host sees that we're there and to see if it's any fun. Right Before we want to commit to going all the way into the party, we're going to come check it out and then decide if we want to stay or if we want to go. It's not that we haven't said yes to God's love and grace given to us in Jesus. It's, it's not that we haven't experienced some transformation that, that allowed us to say yes in the first place. It's, it's not that we haven't been saved It's that we've treated those things as static places of arrival. I've been saved. I don't have to do anything else. I experienced God's grace today. It'll last me for a while. And the whole point of saying yes to God is is that we're following Jesus. Where Jesus leads, I will follow. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. Where, Where Jesus leads, I will follow, not I will watch him walk further down the road and then decide if I want to go. God invites us to this transforming grace, to this life-changing experience of being in relationship with God and with one another, to ongoing spiritual growth. There's nothing wrong with the appetizers, but if that's where you stop, you're missing the real feast. That's why we keep asking you to be part of worship plus two, right? Come to worship, but also come find a small group where you can grow with one another and and find a place to serve. Don't settle for the appetizers. It's as simple as, as for me, I used to think that quiet time had to be in the morning. That's what I was taught growing up. If you were going to have a quiet time with God, it had to be first thing in the morning. Well, I'm not a morning person. I never have been, and it's likely I never will be. 
right? And so I would find reasons to keep pushing that off, saying, I'm just not a morning person. God, if you really want me to spend time with me, you're going to have to wake me up earlier, all on and on. And finally, it was as if God said, do you not think that I'm available to you at night also? Do you not think that, that you spending, more, spending time with me is more important than what time of day you spend with me? Jesus invites us to the feast. The second way that we're asked to consider our RSVP is what is our response to being inviting? We're all invited and all are invited. We, we don't get to set the guest list. And this is hard for us who are in the church because we like our table. We like our feasts. We like the people who are with us. But the people who'd been invited and said yes, they didn't come. Perhaps they assumed their place would be safe. Perhaps they assumed that, that Jesus would, would save the space for them, right? That it would be there when they wanted it. They probably couldn't have imagined what Jesus would suggest that the master would send out for the least and the last and the lost and the wretched and the homeless and the misfits and those who are overlooked, those who are marginalized, those who are outcasts, and invite them in, compel them to come in. I wonder who the misfits are for you. It's not just about being invited to the feast. We're called to be inviting to the feast. And we don't get to say who's welcome at the table. It's not our table. It's God's table. I wonder who the misfits are for us as a church. We, we like to say that we're a welcoming church, and we are. We really are. But are there people that you know or could imagine that would not feel welcome here? The thing is, the further into the feast we go, the deeper our communion with God, with the host, with Jesus, the greater our compassion will be for others at the feast. <clears throat> we recognize that this parable isn't about those poor people who aren't like us. It's about us needing God's grace recognizing that we don't need to control who's at the table, as if we could, really, but that we don't need to. It's not our feast. It's God's feast. It's not our table. It's God's table. We have no excuses for not coming to the party, and we have no excuses for leaving others out. It is hard truth and ridiculous grace, but it's God's truth and God's grace. So I wonder today as we consider who we are and we consider our own place at the feast, how are you going to RSVP to being invited? Are you going to come? all the way into the feast, not just hang out on the ports with the appetizers? And how are you going to respond? How am I going to respond to being inviting of others to come in to the feast? 
the feast at God's table, the feast of God's grace. Let the people say, Amen.